Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you, please, to open them to Revelation chapter 20. And this morning we'll be in verses 7 through 10. So, Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. Now, as we have been working our way through this book, I'm sure some of the uh, interpretations you've heard... maybe are ones you hadn't heard before and might even be ones that go against how you otherwise may have approached this book. And so why is he disagreeing? I'm not disagreeing for the sake of disagreeing. I have a very clear purpose in, in, in the reason why I'm approaching the book the way I am. This book is supposed to be, this book of Revelation is supposed to be a blessing says so right in the very beginning, opening of the book, in chapter 1, verse 3, this is a blessing for those who hear it and take it to heart. You see, what often happens when it comes to uh, the book of Revelation is people ask the wrong questions and they interpret it in a, in a mysterious way and, and it doesn't leave the church edified as much as it just leaves people confused. It doesn't make people strong and stable and ready to stand in the face of adversity. It leaves people scratching their heads. I mean, maybe you can relate to this. This was my experience growing up as a believer. You see charts and all kinds of diagrams and you hear how every symbol or number corresponds to this nation or that ruler or this future event or that past event. And when that happens... You just kind of scratch your head, throw up your hands and say, well, I don't understand any of it, but I guess that's what it means. It is a difficult book after all. Well, one of the goals that we've had, we're near the end of the book now, chapter 20, we go to chapter 22, but one goal working through this book was to, to cut through the confusion and make Revelation at least a little bit more accessible so that when you read the book, you come away stronger in the faith not weaker. You come, come, come away with a greater understanding and not a greater confusion. But what's worse than confusion is very often when this book is preached, it inspires fear. Right? It leaves people fearful. I mean, how often have you been terrified maybe you, you missed the rapture or that you might have to endure the great tribulation? How many of you, as, as, as maybe as children, you... You know, you were looking around and you couldn't find your mom or your dad, and so you, you uh, looked where you thought they might be. You didn't see any clothes lying around, so you were a little more hopeful. And, and, then, and then you see someone walking down the street that goes to your church. Now, he's pretty holy, so if, if, uh, if, if the rapture happened, he would be gone. And you're a sigh of relief, right? But this, uh, th this book and its interpretation is presented as a, as a fearful thing. Listen, if that's the impact of a particular approach to the book of Revelation, right, fear and confusion, if that's how it leaves people, that interpretation is wrong. The interpreter is missing the point because the point is this book should be a blessing. The point is Christ reigns. The point is that the world and its ways that appear so invincible are actually doomed. 
They're, they're, they're barely holding together. That, that's the message of this book. The world, the kingdom of darkness, is frail and it's fitted for destruction while the church, the people of God, not Israel in the Middle East as an ethnic people, but the church, the people of God, though in all appearance are frail, they will inherit the earth because Christ has triumphed over all. That's what this book is about. Don't be afraid. Don't give in to the pressure of the world around you. Keep resisting. Stand uh, in, a, in, in the face of adversity and fix your feet upon the Word of God. Why? Because Jesus wins. You're on the winning side. To compromise or to capitulate puts you on the side of eternal loss. So don't give in. Now we see this victory played out. This victory of Christ once more in these four verses. Revelation 27 through 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they march up over the broad plain of the earth and they surround the camp of the saints. That's the believers and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Lord, I pray it would have its intended effect on us this morning. And that You would use it to, not to confuse, but to clarify Your church's position and role in the world. That Your people wouldn't be afraid, but they would be emboldened in the light of hostility. And a growing acidic atmosphere around us. Lord, I pray that You would help me to preach, Lord. Lord, nobody needs to hear me. They need to hear You. And so I pray that You would manifest Your glory to Your people this morning in, in some, some small or great way, Lord, that they would be helped. Help to understand Your Word. Help to hold fast. Help, Lord, to live in light of eternity and help to cling to the truth. Lord, we, we live in, in Pilate's age. Lord, what is truth? You are the truth. You are the way and You are the life. And Lord, I pray that You would engrave that under our hearts with a pen of iron that we would never, ever forget it. Lord, help us this morning that Your work and Your will would be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, verse 7 doesn't actually follow verse 6. It actually picks up after verse 3. And if you remember, verse 3, it says, after the thousand years, so after that, the thousand year imprisonment, he, the devil, must be released for a little while. Verses 4 through 6 tell us what this thousand years looked like and what God's people were doing during that time. And verse 7 through 10 describes that release or the time of Satan. And so when you, when you read through this, it's, 
It's easy to think of this in terms of chronology. In terms of one event coming after another. Thousand year ends, Satan is released for a little while, heightened period of demonic activity, and then the end. But we've been talking about this and going through the whole book by way of contrast, right? And remember, the devil is still active during those thousand years. He's, he's not utterly and completely bound. He is bound so that he cannot deceive the Gentiles any longer. But he still deceives people. He still blinds them. He still sows lies and death. He still wars against the church and against God. He, he still conspires in high places. I mean, there is plenty of satanic activity he is able to unleash within the circle of his imprisonment. In fact, when he is released, you wonder, how is the devil bound? When he is released, what does he do? He goes out and he deceives the nations. And his binding is what prevents him from doing that, deceiving the nations. It's not like he is completely bound, unable to do anything at all. He's actually able to do very much damage in the world around him. But as we go through these verses, where the saints reign is long, the devil's reign is described as short and contemptible. Satan's time is short. That's one of the messages of the book. In Revelation 12, 12, we read the same thing. He rages violently because he knows his time is short. But that begs the question. It could hardly be called short if you were referring to the 2,000 years since the death of Christ. <clears throat> He's been very active prior to that. Even this whole timeline since creation from beginning to end, Satan has had immense influence for evil. And if his time is compared to that, to this, the age of creation, his time can't be called short because it's covering all the time that's passed so far. So what's it compared to? What is his time short compared to? Well, it's compared against the thousand years. But that thousand years is what? It's the time of the saints. Now we, we, the saints, have an eternity ahead of us. We have an infinite amount of time to come. And He has an infinite amount of time for judgment and hell ahead of Him. And so even if the saints were given 10 million years, I don't think, or even if the devil, sorry, was given 10 million years, and I don't think he is, but even if he was, his time would still be incredibly short by comparison because anything compared to eternity is going to look very small. And I think this book makes it clear that Satan's a little while or his short time is happening alongside the saints 1,000 years. You have a strong reign of Christ symbolized by a long time and a short reign of the devil symbolized by a microsecond, which is literally what the word is. Satan is released for a micron. And it's both at the same time. The church's time is long and it goes on forever and ever. The devil's time is short and it will soon be over. Verses 7 through 10 describes when it is definitively over. But how many times have we seen this play out in the book of Revelation already? Do you remember chapter 16? The sixth and seventh bowls, what happens? 
God's enemies were gathered by demonic influences. It says they were deceived to come together at the battle of Armageddon and they were immediately destroyed by the appearing of the Lord. Those all the kings of the east are gathered together. And then in chapter 19, what happens? All the kings of the earth are gathered together with the beast and the false prophet to fight against the Lord and they were destroyed. And what happens here? All the nations from the four corners of the earth are gathered by the devil to fight against the Lord and they are summarily wiped out. These are not three distinct future battles. These are symbolic battles. And it's the same. You can think of it like this. Maybe you've been watching a sports game and then there's a, a play and it's a really fantastic play and they slow down the camera to slow motion so you can watch it happen. Right? So you see it happen at full speed, then you see it happen in slow motion, and then what do they do? Camera switches to a different angle, and you see the same thing from a different angle, and you're, you're wondering, oh, it, it looks like the puck crossed the line here, or, or maybe the ball crossed the plane here, and then you look at it from another angle, and you get a clearer picture, and you put them all together, and you really get an idea of what's happening. Well, that's what's happening with these battles. It's not battle after battle after battle after battle. That just seems so out of place in the book of Revelation, in the book of the Bible, in the New Testament. It's one spiritual battle being viewed from different perspectives, like a replay. And each one of them, it's, it's ratcheting up the participants, isn't it? In chapter 16, it's the kings of the east gathered by demonic spirits. In chapter 19, it's the worshipers of Babylon led by the beasts. And here, it's all people, great and small, from every corner of the earth, led by Satan himself. All of them conquered effortlessly by Christ. That's, by the way, one of the reasons why I doubt that this is a reference to a new rebellion, a new battle after a time of Christian prosperity. In the same, it's, it's the same battle we've seen over and over, just in a different light. That's, it's going to become clearer as we go along. But uh, even in the Greek, each other battle is called either the war or the battle. The war, the battle. The definite article is there. And so it's three perspectives on the battle. And because this one is so cumulative, it contains all the people and is led by the devil himself, it's fitting to be the final one in the book. But also, listen, these are not flesh and blood battles. And we, we ought to know this by now. You know, in Ephesians, what, what do we read? We do not fight against flesh and blood. We don't do that. That's not the battle of the church. And so I think it's strange seeing that so clearly in the New Testament. You know, my kingdom is not of this world. We do not battle against flesh and blood. All of a sudden, we get to the book of Revelation and have flesh and blood battles happening. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Even Satan being thrown into a lake of fire, that's a, a spiritual being being thrown into a material fire. It's symbolic. Well, these are pictures of spiritual realities that we face that will one day be conquered once and for all. And so we shouldn't interpret these passages as literal, physical battles. They are pictures of the once-for-all victory Christ will obtain. Not over armies marching from all over the world, but over every principality and power that exalts itself against Christ and His church. Christ will conquer them all. Let me just 
say one more thing here at this point. Often when we think about what's happening in Revelation, we can really distance it from ourselves, can't we? And make it far away from us. If you've seen maybe any of the the Left Behind movies or you've read the, The Great Lake, Planet Earth, Right? You see those things and, and you, almost have, you get this idea, well, all of this is going to happen in the future and so it has no application to me today whatsoever. All I have to do is make sure you know, I don't get a microchip stuck in my arm or a tattoo on my forehead. All I've got to do is make sure that I don't enlist in some 200 million strong army to go over and fight in the Middle East. And if I don't do that, I'm fine. Do you honestly think that's what this is about? This is not what this is talking about. I mean, when I say it like that, it almost sounds silly, doesn't it? In light of everything we read in the New Testament. No, what what this is talking about is a spiritual battle that all of you are in. And everybody outside of this building is in. That's what is going on here. This spiritual struggle that has been happening from the beginning on until the end, this is its end. And it's not armies of from 200 million horsemen or whatever gathered against uh, uh, the nation of Israel to fight outside Jerusalem. They're fighting against, what are they called in the passages we just read? The saints. What does the New Testament refer to as the saints every time? Us. Believers. Those who have put their trust in Christ are the holy ones, are the saints. This is talking about the war that you are in today. The war between the world and the church. And nobody is on the sidelines, are they? Jesus says, if you're not for me, you're against us. If you're not for me, you're against me. That's what we have happening here. Spiritual warfare about to be ended forever. To make the point of what's going on here a little more clearly... John introduces us to two new characters in the book of Revelation, Gog and Magog. Now, if you're taking the book literally, then this has to be Gog and Magog. Can't be Russia or Iran or China or revived Rome. It says Gog and Magog. But of course, this is another symbol. And, And thankfully, we don't have to speculate about who they are because they're from the book of Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39. And what's more, when Ezekiel wrote about Gog and Magog, they were symbolic then. You see, Ezekiel was writing about something that was going to take place after the exile. So he he was the exile prophet, Ezekiel. So we're talking here about something post-Babylon, post-exile, after the people have returned to the promised land. And you remember, Babylon came to be symbolic of oppression and exile and of God's people living in a place where they really just don't belong, right? Kind of like the church doesn't belong in the world, John 17, 16. But after Babylon fell, it still had that meaning, a place of exile, a place of, of temptation and pressure to compromise. But after Babylon fell, it didn't make sense to speak of Babylon as the great military power threatening to destroy God's people anymore. And so Gog and Magog became symbolic for enemies from the north that would attack and oppose God's people. They're the enemies that come after Babylon has fallen, so we should expect them to show up here in this book of Revelation when? Chapter chapter 19, where Babylon 
is fallen. It's a fitting symbol to use after Babylon has been destroyed. Gog and Magog, the, the byword, not for the land of exile, but for violent invaders. And in Ezekiel, most immediately, they're symbolic. So what are they symbolic of in Ezekiel? Most immediately to the Seleucid Empire and a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was absolutely vile in history and he made every effort to exterminate Judaism. This was not like the exile. In the exile, God's people lived in a foreign place that constantly put pressure on them to compromise. Occasionally, some of them were killed. But Antiochus sought to exterminate them completely. It was a kind of first holocaust. And his life was a continual blasphemy. He sacrificed pigs on the temple altar. He burned the Holy Scriptures wherever they could be found. He disemboweled the priests. He slaughtered anyone. So if you were to join a riot and say, you need to stop sacrificing pigs on the altar, what would happen to you? You would be killed, no questions asked, and your family along with you just to set an example. In fact, he, he even went so far to call himself God, uh, God manifest. That's what epiphanies means. God manifest. I mean, whatever evil you can think of, if you can name it, he did it. And later, his armies were smashed by Judas Maccabeus, the hammer. And it's a fascinating bit of history between the Old and New Testament. Uh, it's in the book of Maccabees. Not, uh, not of course, uh, an inspired book, but a historical book nonetheless. And it, it talks of, of this conflict between Antiochus and the Jews. But he was the arch enemy of God's people in that time. Probably the most sacrilegious uh, enemy they ever faced. He was far worse than the Romans. And he was from the north in a land that the Hebrews came eventually to call Galga and Metgalga. And those names preceded him, but afterward they became uh, proverbial, much like Sodom and Gomorrah. And actually, Galga was the name of uh, the ruler of Metgalga, but with time they became uh, written simply as Gog and Magog. Now, th there are other possible explanations, but this is generally the most compelling. But of course, all of that's just background. Gog and Magog, hostile invaders from the north. Well, what does Ezekiel say is the significance of the armies of Gog and Magog? Number one, God is sovereign over them. So this is Ezekiel 38, verse 4. I will, God speaking, I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in armor, a great host. That's the very first thing we're told. God is the one who brings them out. It's a reminder again of the absolute, undeniable, unthwartable plans and purposes of God. Even when His enemies gather for war, marching under the banner of the evil one, they only do so according to God's plan. He's the one who brings it to pass. And we saw this already, didn't we, in chapter 17. God is the one who caused the people to turn on each other and turn against the harlot and give their allegiance and authority to the beast. And so even though they're gathering to fight against God, the last thing in their minds is to do the will of God. To, they, they want to fight Him so He can't exert His will anymore. Even then, in a greater way, God Himself is gathering the peoples for judgment. I mean, you, you, you have to believe this or you're going to be an, uh, an anxious wreck. 
You see what's going on in the world. You say, what is going on here? I never expected it to be this way. Well, keep this at the back of your mind because no matter what happens, you can know God is at work. God is doing something. One day you'll see it. But to the degree that you can trust Him and put your faith in Him today, to that same degree you will be able to face anxious situations with confidence. When the world fights against God, it is only fighting according to God's plan. I mean, have you ever seen maybe a movie or read in a book where everything that was happening, it all seemed to be unrelated, right? Contrary to one another. But then in the end, you find out all of it was orchestrated by either a, a villain or, or the hero. Have you ever read something like that, seen something like that? And you, you see it and you're shocked, aren't you? They say, how, how were they in control the entire time? That's incredible. Well, this is how God speaks of reality. God is in control the entire time. Number two, second thing we learn about Gog and Magog and Ezekiel. God will bring them together against His church to vindicate His holiness. Chapter 38, 16. You will come up against My people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter day, I will bring you against My land that the nations may know Me when through you, O God, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So God brings these enemies against His people. So He doesn't just call them together. He calls them together against His people. God is doing this to vindicate His holiness by striking them down. See, if those who follow the Lord are suffering for the sake of His name and for righteousness, if God does nothing to avenge them... What would that tell the world about God's holiness? Well, that God doesn't too much care about it, does He? These people are serving Him. They're holy. They're striving after God. And God just lets them get wiped out continually forever. God doesn't care about justice. His people seek Him in vain. Or maybe God's not able to conquer His enemies. No, nothing could be further from the truth. He is simply biding His time until the appropriate time to vindicate his name. Gog and Magog will be destroyed and God's holiness, uh, God will be shown to be just and holy forever. He will show himself as righteous and sinless and just in a dramatic way by the final destruction of his enemies. Number three, God will judge them to show his greatness. Chapter 38, 22, with pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him. Who is him? The nations of the world. And I will reign upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur, so I will show my greatness. So he doesn't just vindicate his holiness, he shows his greatness. How? All the powers of the world cannot stand before him, not for a second. They are assembled, but only for destruction. What's the point? You, you, you can't fight against God. It is a losing proposition. It's a losing battle every time. I mean, Pharaoh learned this lesson, didn't he? In fact, you, you remember in the book of Exodus, if you read through it, there are a lot of similarities between Gog and Magog and Pharaoh in Egypt. Deuteronomy 16.9, it says God, so God speaking to Pharaoh, he says, but for this purpose, I, God, have raised you up 
to show my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It's almost like God gives a picture. Pharaoh, this is what I've done with you. I've created you like a pot. And I'm going to show how powerful I am by smashing you to pieces. And it's not like he just pushes the pot over and it falls and kind of cracks. He lifts it up and smashes Pharaoh to the ground so violently that he's turned to powder. That's why Egypt was made into a mighty nation. Why was, you wonder, why was Pharaoh made so powerful? Why did God raise them up to such a, a height, most powerful nation in the world at the time? God did it so that He would get glory over them by casting them down. That's what this life is about. We talked about it on Tuesday night a couple of uh, nights ago. This world, creation, universe is a stage for the glory of God. And so God made Egypt great made Pharaoh great so that when he threw them down and trampled them underfoot for their wickedness, he would be exalted. Everyone would see it and say, even the mightiest nation this world knows is nothing compared to the God of Israel. And here, in Revelation, to stamp to engrave, to carve His greatness in the annals of eternity, He overthrows every opposing power in the world in an instant. Number four, God will feed them to the birds at the supper of God. Chapter 39, listen to this. 17, speak to the birds of the air and every so of every sort and to all the beasts of the field. Assemble and come, gather all around for the sacrifice, sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. Verse 18, you shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth. Verse 19, and you shall eat fat until you are filled and drink blood until you are drunk at the sacrificial feast I am preparing for you. This is another one of the reasons why I say there is really only one battle in view here. This is just from different perspectives. Again, I don't think it's a rebellion that happens after a millennium. Ezekiel says... This is the same battle that was described in chapter 19. So what happens here with Gog and Magog, Ezekiel says, this is the same thing that happened in chapter 19 when all of the armies were gathered together. Presumably the same thing that happened in chapter 16. One battle, different perspectives. Because exactly what happened to the army in chapter 19, the supper of God, food for the birds, happens here in chapter 20. We just don't read about it in chapter 20. We read about it in Ezekiel 39. And lastly, kind of putting it all together, God will get glory for Himself by destroying Gog and Magog. Kind of a summary statement. Chapter 39, 21. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid on them. Right, that's the goal, right? God gets glory for Himself. And of course, this is symbolic. Symbolic not of God's victory over a human army, but His victory over all that opposes Him. I mean, what could be more glorious and good than righting every wrong ever committed? What is more glorious than proving once and for all that He is God and His ways are just? What could be more glorious than casting down every enemy ever formed against Him? 
I mean, we could go on and on. God glorifies Himself in the destruction of Gog and Magog. I mean, have any of you ever been accused of doing something that was wrong and it wasn't true and you knew it wasn't true? You were falsely accused? Or maybe on the other side of that, you were telling the truth and no one believed you? What does vindication feel like when it comes? It feels pretty good, doesn't it? It's a good thing. But why is it good? It's not just because you're exonerated and you're proven right. It's more than that. The reason vindication is good is because it brings truth into light. And the truth is always good. And in God's case, against the world, they may hate the truth and hide the truth and fight the truth and suppress the truth in unrighteousness. But God, in judgment at His appearing... He will get glory for Himself by setting forth the truth in an undeniable, irresistible way. And the truth will become the foundation of everything from that point forever. Never a lie ever again. God will be glorified in the devastation of His enemies. It's not... Even in our, in our own day when... When somebody commits a terrible crime and they get a slap on the wrist, you know that's not right. That's a wicked thing that's happened. When God brings His enemies into judgment, there's not going to be any slaps on the wrist. The punishment will fit the crime. Uh, at this point, you've been thinking about this passage, and maybe you object and you say, well, Corey, you're saying that there's no rebellion before the end, but what about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? And I would say, what about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? I'm not saying, listen, I'm not saying that there isn't a rebellion against God at the end. I'm just saying these passages in Revelation are not about that. See, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Revelation 20 are speaking about two separate things. One is about the condition of the world immediately prior to the second coming, right? That's Second Thessalonians. And it's written because the people think Christ has already returned. And so Paul writes to them and he says, no, Christ hasn't returned yet because these things have to happen first. Here in Revelation, it's a symbolic picture of the Lord's triumph over all evil. One is given to assure believers Christ has not yet come. 2 Thessalonians 2. The other is to inspire believers to stand firm until He does. And it does so by ensuring them that every enemy will be trampled in righteousness and in justice. Well, now we come to chapter 10. And I, and I want to illustrate a point I made at the end of this sermon. Or at the beginning of the sermon. In Revelation, more than any other book... It's easy to get endlessly caught up in the minutia and the details and miss the main point. And it's like, it's like wandering in a forest and you're trying to find your way out. And to find your way out, you begin to look at individual trees and study them. And, you know, oh, look, here's a birch and you're looking at the bark and the leaves. And there's a, a pine and here's a, a fir. That's not a bad skill to have, but it's not going to get you out of the woods. Some people read Revelation that way. And they look at this verse in great detail, almost too much detail, and that verse, and they never get to the main point. But see, if you're lost in the woods, you don't escape by studying the individual trees. What you need to get out of the woods is a map or a, or a bird's eye view. You need a big picture. Now, to illustrate that point, 
We've spent, I, I don't know, 20 or 30 minutes working through these verses so far. Let me ask you a question. What's the main point of verses 7 through 10 of chapter 20? What is the most significant and important thing happening in these four verses? Think about it for a second. We've been looking at leaves and bark, haven't we? And now that is not helpful. It is help. It helps us to understand the Word of God better. helps us to understand God better. But, but now it's time to see why these verses matter so much. And the reason, really, it's incredibly simple. This short passage, understand, this marks forever, for all time, the end of the evil one and his kingdom. The devil, the accuser, this is where he is done and judged, never to be seen again. Verse 10, his entire kingdom crumbles, never to be rebuilt, never to be restored, and he is judged and condemned forever. This is not just something to gloss over. Listen to verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and there they will be tormented for how long? Day and night, forever and ever. It's over. I mean, there are more glorious things to come, but just let this passage sink in for a second. Not only is the devil gone, but his entire kingdom no longer exists. I don't think we can imagine what that would be like. I don't think we can do it. And even if, even if you could try to describe it, it would only be an unlived out description. You're just talking about something you don't understand. What do I mean? Water is... Well, Aristotle said, if you want to know what wa- uh, wetness is, don't ask a fish. Why? Because water is so universal and pervasive to a fish, it cannot imagine life without being wet. And in the same way, we cannot imagine life without the ever-present influence of the kingdom of the evil one. I mean, it's, it's pressure put on you all the time. It's like the clothes on your body. How many of you feel the weight of them? It's there all the time. Maybe after I said that, you're like, oh yeah, I can feel my clothes. But you didn't for the last hour. Or the air around you, it's exerting pressure on your body. Do you feel it? No. Why? Because you're so accustomed to it. You, you, you feel it when you wake up, when you walk around, when you lay down. Always there. The pressure of the evil one of that kingdom is constant on us. As so much so we can't imagine what life would be like without it. This is one of the reasons why I think Jesus says, no eye has seen or ear has heard. But it's not just that the kingdom of the evil one exerts itself in pressure like that. It exerts itself in far more obvious ways. It tears families apart. It blinds ones that you love. It does tempt you to corruption. It orchestrates attacks on the church. It fights against godliness and resists what is right. It wants to destroy you and your marriage and your children and your church. But guess what? Here we read, God is going to take that kingdom and its ruler, the devil, and crumple him like a paper cup and throw him into those eternal flames. Here we get a glimpse 
of the devil and all his work cast into the lake of fire. Well, maybe you ask, yes, but what about my fallen flesh? Isn't that a source of evil? It is. But, but in a world this corrupted, this evil, it would be foolish to think there was only one source of wickedness. Now, there, there are plenty of others at work. And even though a great deal of our personal guilt and personal trials come from our own sinfulness, certainly I think we, we all can agree that were there no devil active in the world... Humanity would not be able to exercise its evil like it does. I mean, our, our, our sin would be no less beastly, but it would be a whole lot less organized. And I think you know what I mean. I mean, doesn't it seem sometimes like the whole world, right? the thinkers, the, the cultural creators, the mouthpieces, the scholars, all, all of them, doesn't it seem like they're all conspiring together against Christ? And doesn't it seem like ideas and, and, and threads, ways of thinking for the last four or five hundred years just seem to be coming together finally in our day to totally undermine Christianity? Right? Ideas and philosophies and institutions and laws come together almost in an unrelated way to oppose what is true and righteous. That's what it seems like, doesn't it? That's the way it appears. And the reason it seems that way is because it is that way. The evil one does not limit himself to a single generation. And in his plan to deceive and to kill and destroy, it's bearing much fruit in our age. Our, our own leaders, we know they're just not capable of conducting such a coordinated long-term effort against God. I mean, they can barely run a country, let alone a, a centuries-old plan with thousands of moving parts. But the evil one can, and he does. He is orchestrating many things against God and His kingdom. We're told, don't be unaware of these things. Well, verse 10 tells us of a time when all of that comes to nothing and less than nothing. What will come to nothing? Well, for one, all false religions will be judged. Because all false religions come from Him. He is the father of lies. He is the inaugurator of every false religion. It doesn't just come from the minds of men, but it is empowered by the evil one. We're told this in, in uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, when they sacrifice, they're sacrificing to demons. Or in the Old Testament, don't sacrifice to demons. So uh, the, the prophets see all of those other religions. If you go to them, you're going to the demonic. But all lies that condemn are from him. But on that day, Jesus' words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father apart from me. They will be proven true as every deception and demonic counterfeit is burned up like chaff. And not just religion, but any ideology that opposes Christianity. I mean, atheism itself will be punished. How? I don't know, but it will be. Along with every ideology that is raised up against Christ and opposes Him into the lake of fire, all of those ideas will go along with Him. And it's not just clearly anti-Christian teachings. All false teaching in the church will be judged. Every well-meaning heretic of the past. And many of them were, never will there be another misconception about the Lord God ever again. He will clear His name from every counterfeit. In short, every single lie will be exposed. Everyone, when the father of lies is cast into the lake of fire. 
But he won't just suffer for the lies that he's told. God will hold him accountable for the truth he prevented being heard. 2 Corinthians 4.4 In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The devil, in some way, will be judged for every single person who has rejected the gospel they heard. You say, why can't people see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ? One reason, not the only reason, but one reason, is they were blinded by the devil and he is going to have to answer for it. And you know what blindness looks like. I mean, you have maybe were this way for a long time. You heard the gospel and it seemed like a fantasy or a fairy tale. Or, or others that you've talked to, they don't see the reality of it at all. I mean, whenever someone comes to you and says, well, that's good for you, but not for me, you're dealing with someone who's blind to what they're saying, what you're saying. You know, no one can actually, listen, see the gospel, hear the truth, and shrug it off without response. You just can't unless you're blind to it. It's like a person who's walking towards a danger they can't see. If they saw it, they would turn around or they would change their course or they would do something, but they're blind and so they just keep going the same way they always have. Well, the devil is going to have to answer for every pair of eyes he's veiled. Now, this doesn't get people off the hook. No, were the, were the devil removed today, people would not be blind to the truth, but they would still hate it. And instead of simply ignoring it, they would fight against it more ferociously. Now, and even here, just a, it's just a small glimpse of how God uses evil for good. Because imagine if the unregenerate in the world hated the truth and were unable to just ignore it, the fury against the church would be immense, wouldn't it? It would be unrelenting until every light was extinguished and every voice silenced. But blindness and apathy are preferable to constant open hostility. But this maker of veils will be judged. Not only is he blind, not only does he lead away from the truth, he causes people to fall away. And he will be judged for all apostasy, for every one who falls away, it originates with him and he will be judged. 2 Corinthians 11.3 But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led away from a sincere, pure devotion to Christ. Well, after this day, no one will ever fall away again. Maybe you fear that for yourself. I don't know if I'm going to make it to the end. Maybe you fear that for your children or for other people in your life that you... I don't know if they're going to make it. Once this day comes, no more false converts, no more veiled eyes, no more confusion, no more lies, no more falling away. There will be the whole truth and nothing but the truth forever and evermore. But how should we live in light of this? Well, one of the things you probably noticed as we were working through this, the truth is really important. The truth is incredibly important. And if you want to survive in a world that presently is experiencing a war over the truth, you need to what? You need to know the truth. I mean, there are so many passages I wanted to go to, and we don't have time to go to any of them. But before we get to the end, let me just remind you of this. Jesus is our example. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. 
And when Jesus is in the wilderness and he is confronted by the devil and he fights against him, he's fighting against the temptations and the trials, he does so by the Word. And if you don't know it, you don't know what the Bible says, if you don't know the truth, you are going to be taken in by every... I mean, didn't, didn't, we, didn't we just see this in the last 10 years in the church? How many people uh, 10 years ago that you would look up to and say, it's a great Christian example. They're doing a great work for the kingdom. And today, where are they now? Caught up in some scandal. Taken in by some... Not even a... a I mean, a, a branch of Christianity, maybe, and it's just weak and influenced by lies. So many have fallen this direction or that direction. How do you prevent that from happening? By standing on the truth. If you don't know it, this is what we read in Ephesians, you will be like a leaf being blown in the wind or foam on the sea. You don't want to be like that. You want to be like a tree planted by streams of water that doesn't move when the storms come. Or like the house that's built upon the rock that doesn't fall down when the trials come. You want to do that? What does Jesus say? Those who hear my words and do them. If you do that, you're not going to be taken in by anything the devil or the world or the flesh throws at you. I mean, you're not stronger than Jesus is. So know the truth and believe the truth and live the truth because one day, every lie, it's going to be exposed. And all that will remain is what is true. Which means today, the truth is all that matters. So don't toy around believing the lies of the evil one or the lies that the world puts against you. Every one of those is going to be consumed. But the truth will remain. Well, let's pray. Lord, there is so much more that could be said and so much more that, Lord, you have given. I pray, God, that you would, Lord, furnish the minds of your people today and make up for the great lack in what was said. Lord, you are the great teacher. You have sent your spirit for that very purpose. And I pray that you would work among us. That, Lord, you would apply your word in the various many ways it needs to be applied, Lord. It could be different for every individual situation, Lord. But I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would help your people to stand on the truth, to resist the evil one, not to give in to the world that promises pleasure and delivers hell, that promises enlightenment and delivers confusion, that promises fulfillment, and leaves people empty. Oh Lord, it's a, it's a devil's world. And I pray that you would deliver your people from thinking about it in any kind of glorious way. It has nothing for us. Help us to believe it and then to live accordingly. Our kingdom cannot be shaken. Lord, help us to fix our eyes, our treasure, our hope, our life there. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.